Today's uh, installment of Life in Our Communion is titled Sorrow and Suffering. And I want to begin with two verses. Romans 12:15 says simply to, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Ecclesiastes 3.4 tells us there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So God thinks that we need each other. And therefore, when we are united to Christ in baptism, we're also placed by Him in the community we call the church or the body of Christ. We are attached to Him. We represent Him. He's the head. He's directing the movement of the body. And one of the ways he directs the movement of the body is by his word, with instruction. Here's what I want you to do. And so we've seen already the need for proper discipline uh, and instruction. We need correction. We need uh, all those things to teach us what God's word says and to keep us on track. We've also seen uh, uh, seen this uh, uh, we've seen the necessity of corporate worship, of gathering together as a body to come before God, to be uh, lifted up, to praise Him, to, again, be united in that sense as a community. And we've seen all this because, of, uh, because this is also, uh, the life in our communion is, is necessary because this is where all the one another commands get put into action. And we looked at quite a few of those. I'll probably be mentioning those again uh, today as well. This life in our communion puts us where God wants us so that we can be nurtured, so that we can grow. It's not optional. Of course, we're not very good at many of the things that we need to do. Like little children who are born into a family, we have to be taught, we have to learn how to do things. And at first, of course, it's awkward, we're inexperienced, but as we mature, hopefully we get better and better at those things. I've been here long enough, been here really since this church began, to see a lot of that maturity as a body, as a church. We, we are doing things way better than we used to, but we still have a ways to go. So two of the things our community should do involves kind of what we would almost think of as opposites, and that is, we are to, uh, uh, it will involve sorrow on the one hand and celebration on the other. And so today I want to address the place of sorrow and suffering in the life of our communion. And next week, Lord willing, we will address the subject of celebration. Both will encompass private and public expressions of these things and also small and large. As a communion, we function individually and we function corporately, both. So there's, there's a dimension, these dimensions are two aspects of being in the body of Christ. So let's address the issue of sorrow and suffering. Sorrow and suffering come in a wide range of forms and sizes. They can be physical, spiritual, mental, emotional. They can range from small disappointments to catastrophic events. They can have, again, individual or corporate dimensions. 
They can be private or public, and they can be short or they can have long duration. So it's a mix. So it's a, it's a whole range of things. One thing is certain, none of us escape sorrow and suffering in this world. Uh, Puritans referred to this world as a veil of tears. The question is, are we going to sorrow and suffer alone, uh, or are we going to do it with others around us? So the community of the church, our communion, uh, even one uh, that becomes really good at this, cannot take away all the suffering and all the pain and all the sorrow. So it's always, so if you're the one experiencing the suffering or the sorrow, uh, it's good to have the community. It's good to have these things we're going to talk about, but there can't be some expectation that somehow that's going to take it all away. Now, if it's minor, maybe it does. Maybe you're just down and you need your spirits lifted and somebody takes you for coffee and that does it. Uh, again, think of a child who has a minor bump. We give it, give them a little kiss. And they're okay, they're off playing again. But obviously sometimes the injuries, the difficulties, the, the pain is much greater. And still the comfort is needed, the comfort is wanted, the comfort helps, but it's, it's not going to take it all away. So uh, the community of the church, uh, uh, even though we wish we could take it all away as we gather around someone who's suffering, uh, we can't. So uh, the next section, I want to give credit to Jerry Bridges' book, True Community. He addressed one aspect of suffering that I think is important theologically for us to, to understand as kind of the foundation of this. Philippians 3, 10 through 11, uh, Paul says that I may know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so if we're united to Christ, we're not just united to Christ in his resurrection. Paul says we're also united to him in his sufferings. This is the part of the fellowship that most of us would rather avoid. We have perhaps been mistaken to think that the abundant, that abundant life, the abundant life in Jesus that is promised in John 10.10 10, only means health, wealth, and happiness. But the scriptures indicate that there is another dimension to our communion with him. Uh, Romans eight sixteen through 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Both are present. First Peter four twelve through thirteen, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, some of this is going to be the recognition and glory of how much we have been delivered from. No more sorrow, no more, no more pain, no more tears. We're going to have a backdrop there to compare that to. And so the, the contrast is going to be dramatic. I think Romans 9 talks about 
God being merciful to, to the vessels of mercy. Uh, and, and so when we realize that we deserve nothing of this, that we don't deserve his mercy and grace, and then we receive it, and it's set against that backdrop, that's going to create this incredible amount of, of uh, awareness, if you will, of just how much it is God's done for us in Christ. So to be united to Christ is to be united to Him in every way. But He has promised, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, for He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. We had lectures this weekend on God's hospitality, and this is one of the ways this is true. He never leaves us. He's always with us. He's always next to us. Uh, attached to us, we're attached to him, and so there's no separation from his love. And so he never leaves us to suffer alone. Sometimes, however, we do withdraw, we withdraw from him. And we withdraw from others. And that is where we can get into some trouble. So, uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, uh, where after he lost his wife, uh, he describes his own sorrow and grief over her death. And he said this, and I, I remember there's a, if you've seen the movie Shadowlands, particularly the BBC version, he, this, this quote is in there where someone, he's very down, he's very sorrowful and grieved, and someone asked him, what about your God? And he said this, but I go to God... Uh, but go to him, go to God when you need, when your need is desperate, when all other hope is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Then you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It may be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. It seemed so once, and that seeming was so was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so so present, a commander, in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in time of trouble? I tried to put some of these thoughts to see whoever that was. I just he put a he didn't name the person. This afternoon, he reminded me that the same thing seems to to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I don't know. Does that make it any easier to understand? But the truth of the matter is, as C.S. Lewis would later put it, when he got some other context and perspective, some time, here's what he said. I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted? Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You are like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice that you hope to hear. So in other words, he said... Uh, it turned out that I think I was the one that closed the door. I bolted the door. He was there all along. 
So there are many, of course, who have suffered for the cause of Christ. This is another dimension. So we have general suffering, uh, pain, sickness, death. But then there are those who actually suffer for Christ's sake. Uh, Again, uh, and have suffered for his cause. There are many who have and there are many who do today. In the last century, it's reported that more people were martyred for the cause of Christ than at any other time. Some of us may live to see this, I think, in our own country. These brothers and sisters uh, can relate to Paul and his desire to experience fellowship, the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. They've discovered that Christ is faithful and that nothing can separate them from his love and that his grace is sufficient for their weakness. Jesus had warned his disciples, which means he warned us in John 6, 16, 33, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So Jesus asked Saul, remember, on the road to Damascus, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And and Jesus so closely identified with his people that persecution of them was essentially persecution of Jesus himself, even though he was he was then seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is really a profound truth, one that we'll do well to ponder for ourselves. We are so intimately united to Christ that what affects us affects him. That's really remarkable. The writer of Hebrews said to his readers, you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And so they literally had fellowship with them and their suffering. So when other Christians are suffering, we pray for them, we think about them, we talk about them, and and so we're, we're united to them. That's why it's important for us to know about these things, to hear about these things, and to remember to pray. Through this relationship, we share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings as well. Fellowship is much, much more, and there's a lot more we'll say about this, but let me just make this, this is kind of an aside. And, you know, we have our fellowship meal every week, which is a form of hospitality, Uh, We bring food to each other, we sit down, we laugh, we enjoy, we tell stories. And I know sometimes I'll hear a a complaint that maybe the conversations are trivial. And they are sometimes. And we need some trivial conversation. We need to know about your deer hunting trip and your football game and your, you know, something happened this week at work. But we also need to be exhorting one another in the Word of God. This would be a great time to talk about the sermon or the Sunday school lesson. And to have some of your conversation in that we need all of that is what I'm saying. We're human beings. This is life. And all of those things are part of life. But don't just stay with those safe, superficial things. We need to be expanding our conversation. So I want to urge each of you today to ask a question, to raise a subject. What do you think of that? Hey, this, this morning in the Sunday school lesson or uh, during the sermon, this really struck me as important or helpful, that kind of thing. What, however, just draw each other into some conversation about this. How does this apply to me or to us? 
So that's an aside here, but an important one. So in other words, um, everything we do is not about food and fun. And even more, it's even more than reading and studying Scripture with one another. Fellowship at times might involve blood, sweat, tears, as we stand side by side with our persecuted brothers and sisters. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that if one part of the body suffers, every part of the body suffers with it. We are, so, we are to so identify with the other members of the body of Christ that we enter into their sufferings and their joys. This is the life of our communion, which is our family. And if you're living a selfish, uh, I run to my house as quick as I can, I'm only here the minimal amount of time because I, I, I want to be sure I go to heaven, right? And everybody thinks I'm a good Christian. But I am not engaged in the lives of anybody else. I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. I'm too selfish. I'm too proud. Uh, I have more important things to do than you people. Then that is not the picture of what Christ has called us to. He's called us to a life of self-sacrifice for each other. That means having people in our homes. That means going to people's homes. That means being available. That means having conversations that are meaningful. Uh, that means praying for each other. That means sharing your burdens with others so they can pray for you, so they can enter into your sufferings. So anything less than that is is just, at best, it's immature Christianity. It's the little kid. It's the teenager that wants to spend all their time in their bedroom listening to their music and not having to be bothered with those people out there in the living room. I'll just go close my door and do my thing. That's immaturity. So we are, again, we, uh, those of us who are parents tend to identify with our children so that their hurts become our hurts. If we could, we'd take away their hurts, right? Paul would say that this identity with the sorrows and sufferings of others should be just as true in the body of Christ as it is in our family relationships. In fact, he said it should be just as strong as the empathy among the various parts of the physical body. You know, if your foot hurts, you can't just ignore that. Well, that's just my foot. The rest of me feels great. You can't ignore that. It gets all of your attention, right? If one part suffer, every part suffers with it. So suffering and sorrow is complicated. Why? Because people and relationships are complicated. They're hard to understand, they're even harder to explain, and as a result, we tend to avoid such subjects rather than face them. If we're all just come here and put on our happy face and are superficial and go home, then we're missing the point. Now, I'm not arguing that we all come in and just have an uh, um, uh, airing of the grievances, um, or just always be down and about how hard life is. Look, this is a balance. There should be lots of joys, there should be lots of happiness, there should be lots of encouragement, but there also ought to be enough intimacy that we can also let people know of our burdens. We are reluctant to dive into situations where there is such uncertainty. And so our default action is usually no action at all. 
We don't know what to say, and so we say nothing. We don't know what to do, so we do nothing. And we certainly, but we, and we, we don't want to be like Job's comforters. And therefore, it's important for us to understand what we can about suffering and sorrow and the comfort of the grieving. The Bible has something to say about both. And we know that Jesus, we're told in Isaiah 53, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In Isaiah 53, 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So a little bit about the nature of grief or sorrow. Sorrow and grief are what we feel when our world is disrupted or turned upside down. Disrupted a little or sometimes completely disrupted. It's a combination. I was thinking about this. I think, and I'm sure I'm leaving something out here, but as I thought about grief, grief is a combination of fear and anger and confusion, at least those three, which can leave us dismayed, depressed, and hopeless. The most obvious example of this is when someone dies, but since suffering comes in many forms, I think it's important to understand that so does sorrow and grief. We, we know that when someone dies, there's grief. We have a funeral. We send flowers and cards. We, we bring food. There are any number of corporate things we do and we ought to do to, to, to express sympathy and concern and love. But what if you, what if someone lost a job? What if someone is having marital trouble? What if there's a wayward child? What if, uh, you know, uh, again, a, a serious sickness? All kinds of things can turn our world upside down. And I think uh, grief is the emotion we often feel, but we don't name it that. And we don't get any cards or flowers or uh, nobody brings us, you know, a cake or a pie. Uh and that'd be nice, uh, or, or at least metaphorically, something. How about a hug or a pat on the back or a phone call or just somebody to sit with? But I think it is, is helpful to think of grief as kind of something on a scale that there are little griefs and there are big griefs and there are different kinds of griefs, but grief is pretty common, or sorrows, another word for that, uh, that we all have to different degrees at different times in our lives. And if we do that all alone, I think it gets us in trouble. The most, uh, so um, sickness, loss of job, uh, again, a breakup of a relationship, financial setbacks, a wayward child, trouble marriage. Every person's grief is unique, has its own special set of, uh, own special set of sorrows and other strong emotions. And while my, your broken leg doesn't help my broken leg, uh, feel any better. Uh, nevertheless, your broken leg does enable you to sympathize better with my broken leg. And sometimes we sit here on a Sunday morning and everybody's took a shower, I hope, and uh, got dressed and looked nice and all that, and we should. I'm glad we do that. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, nobody else is going through things like I'm going through. Yes, they are. And if they're not, they will be. But I guarantee everybody has. And, and it's always, it's a moving thing. And so it's good to just recognize that. Everybody in this room 
has sorrow and pain and suffering of different kinds. But to say something that is true, in this case, that grief is unique to the individual, that does not mean that that is the whole truth. There is more to the story. There's more to lay hold of, again, because grief is common to all people. And while it differs with the individual and the circumstances, there remains a unifying experience that is both genuine and helpful. The Bible tells us, to again, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so we should honor and respect both the individual and the corporate nature of grief. So let me also point out, and I think this is very important, that your joy is also uniquely your joy. It's not just grief that's uniquely yours. Your joy is uniquely yours. I can rejoice with you, but I can't, I can't feel exactly what you're feeling when you have a great joy. But I can come alongside you and be happy for you. Or I can be sad for you but not to the same degree in exactly the same way you are. In fact, every aspect of your life is unique. It's uniquely yours. However, your joy, your sorrow, and your life are always connected and tied with the community's joy, sorrow, and life. You're never alone. You are always connected. That's what it means to live and have life in a communion, a common union, a community. So if we're cut off, or more likely, if we cut ourselves off from the community, from our broader family, the church, our friends, then both our joys and our sorrows are diminished or made. In one case, yeah, our joys are smaller and our griefs are greater. Pastor Wilkins commented at a pastor's conference observing that one day he saw a beautiful sunset, but no one was was at home for him to share that experience with. You ever had that? You see, man, I wish I could show this to somebody. I think that's why we like to maybe watch movies together, talk about books that we've both read. We want to share some beautiful thing that we've seen or heard, music. Um, I like to, it's interesting, you go to a concert, you go to a, orchestra or something, I, I, I would probably rarely go by myself. But I want to go with somebody, even though we're going to sit there for two hours and not say a word to each other. Just knowing that somebody else is there experience, experiencing this with you. So uh, the Bible simply says, it's not good for man to be alone. So for each person, all things are unique and personal as well as corporate. I can't feel exactly what you feel, but here's what I can do. Here's what you can do. I can love you. I can sympathize with you. I can weep with you. I can bear some of your burden. I can comfort you. I can stand or sit with you. I can just be there with you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 4.15, even if I haven't experienced anything like what you have, Jesus has. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So we can always come alongside one another and help, which is our priestly function. We can help point the way to Jesus and to our comforter. 
We can remind one another of what we already know, but we need to hear again. And even if the relief is not immediate, we do know that God's word is effective. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And one of the things God's word does is comfort us. It assures us. It tells us the truth about him, about our situation, about the future, about the present. As you know, I've said many times, there's more things we don't know than we do know, but what do we know? We know God is good. We know God is all-powerful. We know he's all-wise, and we know he loves us. I need to hear that over and over and over because those four things together comfort me. I might know I might most of the time I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing it. I can't figure it out. I don't know how this is going to work out. It doesn't make sense to me. But that's why he says, "Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes your puny understanding, I added the word puny for emphasis, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus." And if I'm not quoting that to myself, I need you to quote it to me. And I go, yeah, I've heard that verse. I know that verse. I still need you to tell it to me if I'm being anxious. So I know that we can make a difference for one another because the Bible tells me so. Words do comfort, as 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us to comfort one another with these words. When a child bumps their head, they run to mommy, she kisses it, gives them a hug, and assures them it's going to be all right. Sure enough, a miracle takes place. It's better now. In fact, this morning, Robbie bumped his mouth or head, and he was bleeding a little bit, and he was crying. But, you know, Oma gave him a little comfort, and I thought I'd still be crying, I think, if I had done that. Uh, 30 minutes ago, but he got over it really quickly. So um, thank you, Omar. Um, but it's not just any words that we have. This is really critical. We have the words of life. These are not just quaint sayings, cliches. You know, this is not just... Uh, something to say, these are the very words of life. Balm applied to a wound. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Speaking of the inspired scriptures, Peter admonishes concerning their power in Second Peter 1.19, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So allow me to remind you of the power of your words. And again, there's other ways we we come around and weep with those who weep and share in these sorrows and sufferings. But words are symbolic of thought, of intent, and of action. Words are themselves... Words themselves are a form of behavior. 
If I punch you in the nose, that's a form of violence. If I threaten to punch you in the nose, that's another form of violence. It's not identical, but it's similar. God's words are powerful. As God's words go forth, they change the world, creating, generating new things, sustaining old things, even resurrecting and regenerating dead things. As creatures who are made in the image of God and having been given this unique ability of language, our words are also powerful. Our words can do damage, right? You ever been, you know, the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Has has there ever been a bigger lie than that? Anybody here ever been hurt with words? Of course you have. But the right kind of words help and heal and comfort. So there are too many uh, words are also forms of behavior that reveal our character. Our words can edify or wound. Again, violent words are a form of violence, and soothing words are a form of comfort. The quality of our words has the power to affect the situation. So a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Again, words comfort. Um, In times of sadness, sorrow, and grief, we often feel helpless. But God has given us a kind of salve that, when used wisely, can bring real comfort and real blessing. Not always in that exact moment, but even the accumulation of those words. The, the, The memory of words. That's a great thing God made us in his image is... Uh, I, I can remember what you said to me yesterday, or last week, or last year, which also is really the power, uh, really power, powerful aspect of letters. You know, to go read a letter that you got last year, or ten years ago. The those words still radiate power and effect. Think that we have the written word of God. We can go to it over and over and over again and get something from it each time that maybe we didn't get before. So uh, when we bring God's word or words of kindness or encouragement, words of truth, we remind one another of, again, what we often already know but need to hear again. Sometimes the impact or effect of those words, again, comes in the moment but might, might be something that actually comes down the road. Maybe you reflect and remember, I remember when I was going through such and such and that person picked up the phone and called me or sent me a card or came by to see me or just sat next to me at church. You can change and lighten the burden of someone. Praying with someone is a great way to bring words of comfort as you weep with those who weep and make your requests known to God. Paul understood Ephesians 6, 21 through 22, but that you uh, also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychius, um, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I've sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. And so as members of one another, as part of the life of our communion, we need to focus on how to comfort one another and how to obtain God's gift of comfort and peace. And so there are many paradoxes or mysteries in the Bible. 
For me, one of the greatest ones is found in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete and lacking in nothing. How can I find joy in the midst of a trial, particularly a severe trial, and yet this is what God calls me and you to do? And I'm going to need some help doing that. I can't do this by myself. I need you. We need each other. And as I said when I started, we don't do this perfectly. And you may have those moments when you feel sad and alone and you wish somebody would do that. Uh, I'll say this too. If you're, if you're in pain, if you're in sorrow, if you're grieving, you also have some responsibility. It's not, I don't go sit in the corner and wait for everybody to come. I, I hope they're lined up doing that. But you, you also can go and tell a friend, I need someone. I need you to pray with me. I need help. This is a family. We can't every, everybody, we can't all be thinking about everything all at the same time, and we can't always know what somebody is going through. We have to be able and willing to share that. Um, so how do we find joy in the midst of a trial? Uh, an explanation is provided in this text, which indicates that God is at work in the trial to accomplish his perfecting or maturing work in us and others. So secret things are always going on behind the scenes when we're in a trial. Things that will surprise us and delight us, if not today, then at some point in the future. Suffering is unpleasant, but in Christ, suffering is not without meaning and purpose. We've all been through certain trials which equip us to be of great comfort to others, for example. I've been through something similar. Second um, Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Real life in our communion means that we must know one another. Again, that's why we can't just, you know, split the scene or have a casual view. We should be all in right here. This is our family. We don't get to stay in our bedroom. We have to come out and be a part of this, really. Real friendships, real investment. And we don't like what we don't know. I thought about this. I have this kitten that showed up about three months ago in the garage, and I felt sorry for it. I fed it. It was just a cat. Now it's my cat. (laughs) And I actually like this cat. But then the other day I heard this cat fight, kind of the growling, carrying on outside, and I looked out, and there was a big cat. I think it may actually be the father of this kitten uh, they look alike. And I thought, I don't like that cat. Uh, I kind of like, I might shoot that cat because that cat I don't know, but I would never shoot the cat that I love, right? You don't like what you don't know. Maybe that other cat's really sweet to somebody else, and they'd be upset if I shot their cat, right? So, um, 
So we can't wait for the sorrow or the suffering to show up. There is prep work to do today. Being here is part of that prep work. Unfortunately, there will always be those who want to live uh, on the edge of the community. There are all kinds of reasons or excuses for doing so, but this is a dangerous and unhealthy place to be. A community, uh, as a community, here are some ways we can minister to those who are suffering and who have sorrow, a presence, just being near someone, a hug, handshake, uh, so forth. Of course, words, both spoken and written. Uh, again, words are powerful. They always do things. In times of sadness and sorrow, we often feel helpless, but God has given us that salve to use. And so our prayers, not just telling someone, I'll pray for you. You could actually just say, let's pray. Hey, let's come over here and have a seat. Let me pray with you. That'd even be better than saying, I'll pray for you. Would even be better? You know, write a prayer. You can do that. Just send a card. Send an email. Send a text. I'm praying for you. Here's the prayer. Oh, Lord, be with my friend today and lift them up. That's a, you can do that. You can communicate that. Be thoughtful to do that. Um, Sympathy, of course. Gifts. I always tell people, so this often happens in the case of a death where people are bringing food, and I've seen this happen many times. Oh, we don't need anything. We've got plenty. Don't say that. If you're the one grieving, just let them bring it, okay? Um, this is how, at least in this part of the world, I assume in many other places, this is how we share. And sh- There's not a lot we can do. But the act of doing something, it's the act of love that is taking place. And if that's your third ham then take it down when they're not looking. Take it down to the food shelter or, or to the, you know, God tell or someplace or it, put it in the freezer or throw it away. But don't say, I don't need a ham. Just say, oh, thank you so much for loving me and bringing a ham or another pie or cake or whatever. Receive those things as what they are, gifts of affection and love, service, you know, we always ask, you know, is there anything I can do? Well, oftentimes we can't, there's not a lot to do. Well, then just do something. You can do something. You can always send a card. Uh, we all were blessed by Mrs. Hall's card giving. And that wasn't a little thing. That was a big thing. Little things make big differences. We have public expressions of this, like when we have funerals, and we ought to. We come together as the body, and we do things. So very. I'm going to close with this. Uh, what spiritual lessons can we learn from life's losses and sorrows? Well, while you're ministering to others, God will also be ministering to you. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of the fools in the house of mirth. Spiritual growth takes place in difficult times more often than it does easy times. Sometimes we avoid ministering to suffering people, because these situations make us feel uncomfortable and unhappy. 
But to be a healer, you have to go where people are hurting. And if you do, your sacrifices will help you be more like Christ. Father, we thank you for putting us together, bringing us together, placing us in your body in Christ. Help us, Lord, not to continue to be little children or immature or sulking in our rooms, but help us, Lord, to be fully, fully engaged in the lives of one another. Bless us now as we come to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.